morning, everyone. Um, good morning to you who are joining us online as well. Um, we are going to continue in our um, current series that we've titled The Crushed Head and the Bruised Heel. And uh, one of the things that we're going to try to do, what we've been trying to do since we started to um, gather again physically, um, is just to try to expedite as best we can, but still be responsible to the text, to the scriptures, to make sure that we're teaching the whole counsel of God. And so um, our teaching team has been really working hard to condense things. We're, uh, it comes natural for us to talk a lot and for a long time, and so it's, it's work for us to try to condense. And so I'm going to try to do a little bit of that today. Um, so bear with us uh, as we try to adjust for that. Um, so this series, like I said, is the, the crushed head and the bruised heel, and it lends itself as, as a glimpse um, into what we hope we accomplish throughout this entire study. This is going to be a, a year-long uh, process that we walk through Scripture, and what our hopes is that we picked up at the very beginning in Genesis and that we'll wrap things up right around the time of Advent, which is uh, going to be toward the end of November, 1st of December. We will have walked through the entire Scriptures not verse by verse, line by line, like we do uh, whenever we study a particular book or, or a particular passage. But basically what we're wanting to do is to shine a light on the reality that all of the scriptures at all times have always been pointing us to Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're stopping at these moments throughout the Old Testament and now into the New Testament where we've gotten, uh, where, where we've arrived, where, where that's our hope and our goal. And that's what we want to accomplish. The crushed head and the bruised heel. This is uh, taken from Genesis 3, where the first mention of the gospel, the good news, um, is, is, is given to us. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and, and 15, uh, after Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, have decided that they want to make their own way, um, and that they don't trust God, and that they trust themselves more, uh, they uh, actually fracture all of creation with their rebellion. Uh, and as God uh, addresses this situation, uh, there's a lot of consequences at play, some that uh, we are uh, still experiencing today and are actually born into today. Uh, and and as, the, as he's laying out these consequences, in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 3, he says this, The Lord God said to the serpent, uh, the one who caused uh, this, this evilness to kind of birth out of Adam and Eve, uh, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, and here's where the gospel comes into play here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, the, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, speaking of Jesus, now he's pointing us, giving us a light to something that's to come, shall bruise your head, and uh, you shall bruise his heel. And so everything was broken through the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Everything was, was, was undone, so to speak, and God promises and then begins to unfold this redemptive story of making all things new. And when we get to the very end of the story, that's what we're going to see. That, that the, uh, the, the apostle John in his last days uh, is given a vision from heaven. And that's the book of Revelation that we get. And one of the things he says is, behold, man, all things are made new. He's being given a glimpse of that time that God redeems everything. Um, and so we've journeyed through this story, through the Old Testament, um, shining a light on this common thread of God's promise his grace to provide this head crusher, uh, Jesus, who, who will liberate us from the bondage of sin, who will liberate us from the rebellion that we live in, 
um, and it's, it's common in every one of us. And so that's something that's just really important. You know, we tend to kind of compare ourselves and to look at other people to determine our moral uh, level, what we're going to operate in life. And the reality is, the way Scripture points, is that there's something broken in every single one of us, something that separates every single one of us from the love of God uh, apart from Christ. And so we need Jesus to, to, to fix this brokenness and bridge this gap that we have. Um, and so for the past five months, we've been looking at this foreshadowing of Jesus all throughout the Old Testament. We've stopped along the way of this promise. Uh, and then over the past two weeks, we've actually seen this promise become a reality in the baby, uh, Jesus, in the nativity story. We've looked at this arrival of this promise that comes to us in the form of a human baby, uh, God in the flesh. And so today we're going to turn to Matthew's account um, of the advent when God delivers on his promise that, we, that we've been told about, that we've been, we've been waiting for this for, we've been talking about for five months, but I just want to kind of maybe um, put some, some reality on the situation. God's people have been waiting for over 4,000 years. They've been told this promise and they've been waiting for it for four, over 4,000 years. And so finally this moment arrives. And Matthew's aim, the gospel of Matthew as a whole, this entire uh, book is to focus our attention on worship. Uh, that's the point of this book. His intent is to shine this, this, this spotlight on all that was involved to, in, in, in order to, to, to create a way for Gentiles to actually come and offer worship to the God of Israel, to, to this Jewish Messiah. So I'm going to read, we're going to pick up in chapter 2, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Um, where we continue this, this moment that this Christ was born. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, which is, he's referring to Micah chapter 5, he says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him bring me word that I too may come and worship him and after listening to the king they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was and when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him and then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so as we turn our attention and we turn our, our focus to Matthew, specifically chapter 2, uh, we're immediately brought face to face with these worshipers that, that come from the east. And it's kind of the focus of this, this passage that these magi that are mentioned uh, are some of the m most mysterious uh, men in all of the entire scriptures. If you think about it, like we, we hit this story every year around Christmas time. You hear songs about it being sung during the Christmas holidays, and, and there's going to be many times that we, we preach from this text and study from this text during the Christmas season. Um, but 
these figures, they seem to materialize out of nowhere, right? We, we haven't really stopped to think about, well, who are these, these people, these wise men or these magi uh, that just happen to show up to worship Jesus? And who we usually wouldn't give a second thought to, uh, but they've assumed this place of prominence in the story, right? Like they are in Scripture. We see this every time we hit this story. So there's something important about the fact that these magi show up from the east, these wise men come from the east, these kings, so to speak, um, that come to worship Jesus. Most of us, we'd imagine them as, as these three characters, right? These three figures that come riding in on a camel from across, from wherever, carrying these gifts. And we would refer to them as wise men. And if, and if they were, in fact, and one of the things that I hope to show us today in this text, if they were, in fact, wise it's because God in his providence pursued them and graciously transformed their evil, their, their wicked earthly wisdom into an eternal wisdom. And here's why I say that. Doing some, now, I, 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 I got to admit to you that I, I'm not um, an ancient historical uh, pro. I don't, I, I don't study it that, that much. Uh, and so I've relied a lot on other very uh, well-versed people who study and write about ancient history. And so this is kind of where some of this background information I'm going to give you is where it's, it's coming from. And so you do this intense study into this biblical ancient history. Um, it, it's identified the, the, the Magi as a, as a priestly caste, as a priestly group that come from the Medes, the uh, Median people. Um, is, a, is a people group. This would, this would validate these men that they come from the east because that's where the Medes uh, would, have, would have resided. They, they would have been absorbed into the kingdom of, of Persia uh, when it took its place as the world-dominating power on the, on the platform of all power in the world. When, when the Persian Empire arose, uh, they, the, the Medes would be absorbed into that, uh, that kingdom, so to speak. Um, and they lived in the region that was east of Israel. It says they came from the east is what we see in scripture. Uh, and, and it's actually about a little over a thousand miles as a crow flies east is where they come from. Uh, just from the southern, uh, southern point along the southern side of the Caspian Sea, uh, which we would uh, refer to today as modern day Iran. Uh, that's where these people would have come, come from, northern Iran. Um, and, and just like Israel had a, a line of priests, right? We call them the Levites. Well, these other people groups also had their line of priests, these mediators who would assist in leading the, the, the people groups to worship uh, whatever gods they, they you know, deemed worship, the ones that they, would, uh, that they would bow down and worship to. Um, and so just like other people groups, the Medes had a line of priests. It was these, these magi, these, these wise men. Uh, these were the magi, and they were the priests of this ancient mystical religion. Um, they, they eventually, this religion was actually adopted into the entire Persian Empire. That's how much, in, much influence they had. This was kind of the dominant form of worship uh, in Persia whenever Persia was the uh, leading empire. And this form of religion was alive and well and, and thriving at the time of Jesus' birth, about a thousand miles or so west. Uh, this was a very prominent religion that was going on. And as you would expect, the word magi, like we, we derive our English term magic or magician from that word. Uh, and so imagine the dominant religion in that area, um, led by these Median priests, practiced things like sorcery, 
They practiced witchcraft, interpreting dreams, and they kind of weaved all of those practices into a form of astrology. And that was kind of how they, how they, they led the people. That's how they formed their religion. They became the scholars of their age. That's why they would be given the name wise men, and that's why they would be looked at as, as wise men. But, but let's not forget their wisdom is couched in evil. Their wisdom is couched in witchcraft and sorcery and all kinds of demonic ways of, of, um, of religion. And their instructions, their, their, their commands and instructions and, and directives, that, bega- that became the law of the Medes. That's kind of what set the law. Just like God's law would set the, the, the pace for the people of Israel, this became the law for the Medes. And as the Medes were absorbed into the Persian Empire then this became the law of the Persian Empire. I know I'm giving you guys a big history lesson, world history, we're going there, but it all means something to us this morning. So they would then become magistrates, magi, lawmakers. They, they set the tone and the pace for how society was going to function in the Persian Empire. These are some powerful people. They would, they would advise the king. They would help interpret dreams through this occult and black magic practices. They would... They would be known, they would be referred to as king makers because they had such influence on the, the seating king that they would be able to advise that king even to the point of who should be his successor. And so they would even call these magi king makers. They, they were kind of calling the shots um, at that time. And so what I hope is that your heart's starting to flutter a little bit as you think about the nativity story. And I know probably it's not happening, but I would hope that's happening. And so I'm going to go another level to maybe hopefully think about the nativity story. Think about what you know about these wise men showing up here in Jerusalem looking for this king that was supposed to be born so that they can come and worship him. Um, and, and, and consider that God had been at work in the intervention of these magi for centuries. This is not something that just popped up one day. They saw a star and said, oh, that must mean a king is being born in Israel. We should go and find that king. That's not how it was interpreted. They were looking for, they were waiting for this moment. They, again, they're astrologers, right? And so this whole star thing appearing, you see how God's intervening into this whole story and how he is leading them um, and, and, and making, making the moves that need to happen for them to, to head this way. And so uh, just backing up a little bit further, we've, we've seen some of this. Uh, in our little journey over the past five months through the Old Testament where Israel had been besieged by the Babylonians. Uh, that was somewhere in the neighborhood of five, it was a two-year besiegement. It was 589 to 586 B.C. is kind of when this happened. All of the uh, Israel, Israelite people were carried off into captivity in Babylon. Among these captives was one young boy named Daniel. And God would raise him up in this story uh, to be the second most powerful person in all of the Babylonian Empire. This guy had influence. He had favor. He had a significant position uh, that we learn about in the story of Daniel. And this happened when Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time, had a dream, and he was troubled so much by the dream, he couldn't, keep, he couldn't focus on anything else. And so what did he do? If you remember the story, if you recall, he starts bringing in the wise men. The, the, the ones, the dream interpreters, the magi, the ones he, he brings in, and he wants them, he doesn't tell them what his dream is because he wants to see if he's going he's to get the right answer. So he says, you tell me what my dream is, and then I will allow you to interpret it. They could not tell him what his dream was. They could not interpret his dream. And where the incantations, all the witchcraft and sorcery and, and evil practices of the magi, where all of that failed, 
Daniel's omnipotent God, Yahweh, would succeed. He would unveil what the dream was to Daniel. He would unveil the, what the dream meant to Daniel, that Daniel could go and carry this back to the king. And so he gets favor with the king. And the outcome in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48 says, The king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. He's pretty much in charge. Now, there's one thing that all of us know if you work in any kind of organization or if you go to any kind of university or if you go to any, sit in any kind of classroom, if you function at all in society, you know that the guy in charge establishes the training curriculum. He establishes the protocols of how this thing's going to work, how it's going to roll. And since we already know so much about Daniel just from the story, that this guy is a character who, his character is wholehearted commitment to his king, no matter the cost, right? We saw that in the book of Daniel, that there was a certain way he knew he was supposed to worship, and regardless of what it was going to cost him, he was willing to, to pay it so that he could worship his God in obedience. And so that's what kind of character we're dealing with. So you can have some level of confidence knowing that if he's in charge of setting the, the training curriculum and the, pro, and the protocols for how this, this, these men were going to act, you can bet there was some Old Testament theology weaved into this story. You can, you can guarantee it that he's going to talk about, he's going to weave into their theology, the theology of the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. We can be sure that the Old Testament scriptures was going to be a steady diet of these wise men. Here they're going to learn about the prophecies, right? They're going to get to see these prophecies predicting God's anointed Messiah, the ones that we've been looking at for the past five months. This, this Messiah who's going to come into the world, born king of the Jews. That's what we saw all throughout the Old Testament. Now, let's recall that they are steeped in astrology. Like this, is their, this is their main practice of religion, uh, for their me, the medium for their religion. And so I'm confident whenever you, you and you know as well as I do, they hear some prophecies about stars and planets and skies. They're, they're tuning in, right? And so you think Numbers 24, Balaam's prophecy, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And their occupation as kingmakers, remember that's what they're called, the Magi would have have taken a level of interest when they heard prophecies like this one, that they would have listened to that. And so with this information then, the, the, these magi could easily make this connection with this star that they see in the sky, something abnormal. They're, studiers, they're, they're students of astrology. They see something that they can immediately connect to the God of Israel. So this is, this is how they're influenced. This is how they know that they're supposed to go to Jerusalem to find this king of the Jews. Because they've been influenced with the Old Testament scriptures and the Old Testament prophecies. And it's been kind of part of, not, they haven't obviously fully embraced the, the one true God, but, but they've, they've got some influence in, the, in their belief and in their thinking because they know what this star means and they, they know what direction to even go. And so I've listed a lot of biblical information and I've weaved a lot of historical information or maybe just historical probabilities into this. I don't want to say this is firm because, again, I'm not a student of history. This is what the historians have understood. But I believe the historical context that we know now 
is validated with sufficient biblical support. I, I, and we're going to see that. When, when these kingmakers arrive in Jerusalem, look at the, the first thing they say in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now don't miss what's going on below the surface, right? This is what we see at surface level, but below the surface. God has moved heaven and earth to put these men where they're standing right now. He's, and he's been working for centuries to make sure that these men are standing in the place that they're standing at this point. He's moving people groups. He's moving nations of the world, overruling powers who, who, would, who would oppose him, people like the Magi, overruling their powers. He's enabling the abilities of the faithful people like Daniel and like you and me. Do you see how God intends to bring the gospel to the nations? That he will move the nations toward the gospel and he'll move the gospel to the nations. That's how God has deemed his gospel to spread. That's how he commands his gospel to be spread. That you may go and make disciples of all nations. And that sometimes it means that the nations are coming to us like we see every day. And sometimes it means that we go to the nations like we should be doing every day. All to accomplish this this purpose of communicating the truth of his son who he loves to a, a group of people whom he is seeking with his love. And now what about the star, right? So there are dozens of speculations as to what this is about. Uh, and it seems like probably every Christmas season, there's just another possibility that's presented about what that might be. And I've heard Halley's Comet. I've heard a conjunction of, of Saturn and Jupiter making just kind of the perfect alignment and making it a bright light. I've heard Sirius, the dog star, uh, it kind of, um, it, it rose helically, which means that it was uh, very clearly seen right in the middle of the daylight. And so all of these speculations about what it is, I'm not going to try to go through this and either uh, prove or disprove these claims. Uh, what we do know and what we need to take away is that something divine-like has taken place. Something Something different than normal has taken place. These are students of astrology. Something that they didn't know happened, and it triggered them to respond in a different way. Much like the story that we see in Exodus. That there was, there was a light. Look at Exodus chapter 13. We saw this a few months ago in verse 21 and 22. The Lord went before them by day when he was leading his people out of captivity in Egypt into the promised land while they were in the wilderness He's leading them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. My point is this. Divine illumination, divine leadership is not outside of the scope of what we already know about God. That he is a God who will do this. That he will, he will move nature to lead people to the promise that he's made through, these, through the providence of God and through the, the faithfulness of Daniel teaching these people the eyes of these men who, who had been immersed in dark evil and witchcraft in this world. They're now, their eyes are now being opened to the awareness of Jesus. That God's opening their eyes. God has moved mountains to make sure that this meeting happens between these men and his son. And if these men are wise, it's only by the grace of God of God that they've become wise. And as God invades in their lives, as he kind of breaks into their hearts and imparts wisdom to them, it's, 
it's going to become necessary for them to tap into this as the, as the passage unfolds this morning. As they face this worldly king and as they face a life-changing choice, that's what's going to have to go down here. Keep in mind, we are in King Herod's world. We are not in Jesus Christ's world. We are in King Herod's world in this passage. It's difficult for us as 21st century Christians to think, when we think about the nativity story, when we think about the birth of Jesus and the traditions that have, that have taught us, um, that, that this was something that was like everybody was just celebrating when Jesus was born, right? That's not the case at all. That's not at all. And I love that Matthew, he swiftly dispels that lie. He cleans, in verse 1 you saw, in the days of Herod the king. And he puts that there to remind us that we're in King Herod's world. We're not in Jesus Christ's world. He's a baby that's been born, but that baby's been born in King Herod's world. Everything that was going on was being influenced, not by Jesus, but by Herod. Everything. It was his kingdom. In comparison to the public attention that Herod would receive on the daily, the birth of Jesus was something that just took place in the shadows of a dark night. There was, there was nearly zero public attention given to this birth. As big of a celebration it is, as it is for us 21st century Christians, there was no celebration. It wasn't even known by most of the watching world that Jesus Christ had been born. And there would be no mistake on the Magi's part of whose world they were traveling in. If you just kind of uh, just take a, a swift look at some of the context of this passage, every corner that you turned, you would be reminded that you were in Herod's kingdom. Whether it be by buildings or statues or plaques or writings, it didn't matter. You were reminded that you were in Herod's world. And they, they wouldn't be mistaken either. either. And as, the, as they stood in the king's palace, as they stood before the king, they received two words of wisdom, two, two words of, uh, of recommendation, wisdom that you and I need to hear this morning. We need to kind of, this is where the part where you tune in. I know I probably lost a lot of you at history. Uh, I want you to kind of come back in now because this is where we need to kind of listen up. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The first words of wisdom that they received, that we need to receive, are the words from God that say, the king that you come to worship will be born in Bethlehem. You're not in Bethlehem. You're in Jerusalem. That was God's word of counsel to them. And then in verse 8, Herod sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So the second, words of wisdom that we receive, that these wise men would receive came from King Herod and it's worldly wisdom. It's wisdom that you and I adhere to every single day. That his counsel, in essence, is for you to give greater allegiance to me than to the one God who's leading you. That was Herod's recommendation. That was his counsel. When you find him, you come back to me and you tell me. You align yourself with me and my priorities, and I'll take it from there. 
And with these two words of counsel echoing in their minds, they leave and they continue this search. And to their amazement, this star that they saw, now they try to, man, I'm going to mess up all your Christmas songs. I'm going to mess up all your Christmas stories. And I know we've been doing that for the last couple of weeks. But they weren't like following the star all the way from Iran. Okay, a star came, it triggered them that, hey, something's happening over in Jerusalem. There's something we learned about in those Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Let's go see what that's about. And now you see in the next uh, verses there where you would see this star would reappear. That it would, it would, the one that they saw in the east that prompted this journey would reappear to them and go ahead of them, leading them southward towards Bethlehem. And as they arrive at the place where that star came to rest, they were faced with this life-altering choice. And again, this is where we need to tune in. This king that they came to see, this king that they came to, to worship, had been about, I'll mess you up again, about a year and a half to two years old. He's not a baby in a manger. I'm going to mess your nativity scene all up. Y'all going to be trying to put that together in the yard this year and be like, ah, king's got to go, all the frankincense has got to go. It's not going to work. He was about a year and a half to two years old. That's why when Herod issues the command to go and kill all the firstborn of Israel, he says two years and younger because he knows it's been about that long. He said, if you wipe all of them out, we got, the, we got that one. But this is a child that they come up on. They've been told that this is going to be a king, king of the Jews, the one that we come to worship. They show up to this place that's not a palace at all where you would expect to find a royal child. The scriptures say they found him in a house. A working class home in that day would have been a simple stone building with, at best, two rooms. And this was a step up from where this child was born, which was basically a sheep pen with all the aromas that come from a sheep pen. It was in no place of royalty where this king was going to be born. It wasn't in a palace. It wasn't in this prestige place. What, what the kingmakers from the land of the east traveled thousand plus miles to get to the place where they believed this king to be born, what they found must have been shocking and sobering when they happened up on this little janky looking house was one and a half year old two year old boy just normal like every other person that they, they see in this around them in this neighborhood and so I want you to go there with them I want you to stand on the on the threshold of the door of this little house with these wise men with these magi there's no palace there's no marble there's no gold there's no gaudy splendor there's there's no servants, palace servants, tending to the, to the boy. There's, there's no worldly wealth whatsoever. What they found was this boy being raised in a blue-collar working-class home. That's what they found. A boy of whom God would say, this is the one who will sovereignly rule over life and death. A boy of whom God said would be the savior, would be the shepherd of his children and those who would worship him. And as the Magi had come to this doorstep of this, this humble place, and as they looked back on the dark shadows of 
Herod's kingdom. And Herod's kingdom literally cast a shadow over this little small town of Bethlehem. Saw this lowly, insignificant child. They were faced with a choice. The same choice that you and I are faced with right now. Two words of wisdom were speaking to them when they stood in that door. Two words of counsel were on their minds and on their hearts as they stood at the door. Can you imagine how frustrating, how haunting it must have been to know that I can only choose one? That I, that I can't have both. I can't go both ways. The voice of worldly wisdom said that your allegiance belongs to the power and to the ease and to the comfort of King Herod's world. The worldly counsel that was given to them says, you align yourselves with King Herod. It's comfortable there. It's peaceful there. It's, it's, it's easy there. Choose the pleasures of this present life. The voice of God's wisdom said, choose the person. Choose the promise of the boy that is standing in front of you. Choose Jesus. Come see. I was going to hold him. Choose Jesus. You have a choice. Choose the world or choose Jesus. As God enlightened the minds of the Magi through the teachings of of Daniel, and as he led them by divine illumination to the promised Savior, he injects a supernatural kind of wisdom into their hearts. In verse 11, he says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, rejecting the counsel of the world and all of its alluring attractions, rejecting the words of Herod, they chose Jesus. Verse 12, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The nativity story is a story of worship. And, and the reality is, what the story that we get from the Magi is, you and I have a choice to make. The promise of the pleasures of this life, the support that comes from power, ease, comfort, or Jesus. Humility. Seemingly insignificant. Not much to him at all is what they saw. And they chose Jesus. They believed God. They believed God that this was, in fact, the Savior of the world, that this was, in fact, the promised Messiah that we read about in those Hebrew scriptures, that it's him, and we choose him. When you hear the Christmas story, and I hope that we can remember this when Christmas time comes along, and for every Christmas after that, when you, when you think of the Christmas story, when you hear the Christmas story, I want you to hear God saying, choose this day who you will serve. Choose this day who you will give your allegiance to. Two. It cannot be both. It has to be one or the other. One is always at odds with the other. Choose this day who you will serve and surrender your life to. 
And here we have a powerful glimpse of, of just joyful worship in these magi. Knowing what we know about them, their background, their journey up to this point now, this has the potential to change everything about how you think about your life, how you think about your job, how you think about your family, how you think about the entire world around you. It has the potential to do that if you just pay attention to what's going on in the story. God has been directing nature itself. God has been moving things to lead these wise men to their Savior. And so how amazing it is to think that God would alter the sky, right? That he would arrange the stars to announce his son, that he would do that. He's exercising his sovereign authority over the universe to make clear the king has arrived. The king has been born and the king is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of it. And, and what, I, what I fear is that you have preconceptions and you have a religious background that will get in the way of what, a, what God is wanting to show you in Jesus. That is going to get in the way of that. So don't let that happen. The invitation at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel is clear. Come and see the king. Come see the king. God is inviting the magi. He is inviting you. He's inviting me to see his son. To joyfully offer our life as worshipers to him. That's, that's where we're at in the story today. And so I, I want us to think about the nativity story. I want us to think about Christmas. And as we think about Christmas, I want us to feel the tension that continually pulls on us to, to worship this or to worship him. To worship my lifestyle that I currently have going on, this ease of life, this comfort, these safeguards, all of these things, or worship Jesus no matter what it costs. No matter if it leaves me destitute or dead, I'll worship him. Like, can you say you're at that place? Can you say that you're in that spot in your life right now? I think there's room for every one of us to repent. Say, no, that's not where I'm at. I can tell you right now, it's not where I'm at. I want to be there. I want to go there. And I want us to go together to that place where we're wholeheartedly giving our lives over to Jesus, no matter what it costs. So let's pray together and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, I, I come to you this morning thanking you so much for your word. I'm thanking you so much for, um, God, the wisdom uh, that you have given, um, God, to historians, to, to just mere humans that would, uh, that would help shine a light on these on these passages that we're studying this morning. Father, I thank you that you are not just a random God uh, who just does random stuff at random times. But that every movement, every breath, every change has a purpose. I thank you for the faithfulness of even these wicked astrologers that in some way you have weaved your story into their hearts, that prompted obedience, that prompted them to get up from the place where they were and move to the place that you were leading them. And not just to move in that direction, but God, whenever they arrive at the place that you've led them, that they would fall down in worship, and may our response be the very same. And God, every one of us needs to be moved along from where we're standing right now 
into a further, deeper, more meaningful relationship with you, one that is uh, wholeheartedly about joyful worship to you. God, we're so good at singing songs about worship, and we're so good at singing songs that are about you. And, and sometimes when we're feeling real super spiritual, we'll even sing songs to you. Father, let our actions, let our movement, let our hearts, let our hands be the story that we tell the world about who we worship. Let our obedience be the greatest form of worship that we can offer you this morning. And Father, to, to be obedient means we're listening to what you're telling us. And so I'd ask, Father, that you would still this moment and that you would speak into each one of our hearts and in our minds about what you have for us. What step do we need to take? What direction do we need to travel in to experience true worship? be in the presence of the one true king. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you that you surrendered your place at the Father's side to come and give your life away for the sake of your Father's glory and for the sake of our good. May our faith be strengthened this morning as we consider the gospel, as we consider Christ Jesus, what you've done for us. And may our response be wholehearted worship. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.